All right, well, it is so good to be with you guys here this morning, and um, Chris is out. I'm not exactly sure where he's at. I think he's down visiting his parents down in uh, Vancouver, Washington, so I get to be here this morning, and uh, today we're going to be talking about pride, and uh, pride is kind of one of those uh, difficult, I don't know, things to talk about because, you know, we kind of, we know from our understanding of the Bible that we're not supposed to be prideful. So we're like, okay, not supposed to be prideful, great. And then we find ourselves being prideful. We say, oh yeah, it wasn't supposed to be prideful. But like, what does it take to get us to like move towards actually not being prideful? Because that's complicated. That involves things that are kind of deeply rooted in our hearts and in our soul. And so being proud is, is hard for us to like, to, to reject and to kind of move away from. And so as we started this sermon today, I thought I would start with telling you guys um, an embarrassing moment, right? So we're talking about pride. Let's like start with an embarrassing moment. Um, so some of you guys may know, uh, some of you guys may have heard this story before because it's a, kind of a fun story, but uh, that I have been um, working for a company called Limitless Minds. And they are uh, been started by quarterback Russell Wilson. And so, you know, it's kind of a cool thing. I work for Russell Wilson. And uh, for those of you guys who don't know Russell Wilson, you know, he's the quarterback of the Seahawks, and he's kind of a big deal around here. And uh, so that's like something that I, you know, really kind of take a little bit of pride in, you know, I work for Russell Wilson. Um, but it's not like I get to hang out with him every single day. We're not, you know, throwing the football in the backyard while we're working or, or whatever. In fact, I've only met him a couple times. And the first time I got to meet Russell Wilson, in fact, I've never met him in person, only over Zoom. Um, but the first time I got to meet him, I was uh, super excited. And he was going to do a keynote uh, speech. He was going to do a keynote speech uh, to a, a large group. I think it was like Microsoft or something like that. And so I, as the resident tech guy, was like setting up the Zoom call. So like we got on early, and we wanted to check the audio and make sure everything was good. And so there I am, you know, I kind of get on early and I'm like, okay, I'm about to like see Russell Wilson one-on-one, -on -one, just me and him. And so I'm just like, okay, be cool, you know, be calm, you know, you can, you can do this, you know, it's no big deal, it's just, you know. So he pops on, all of a sudden his camera comes on and I'm looking in his office and it's like painted green, it's got all these books, and, and he looks, and he's like, oh, hi, uh, I'm, you know, I'm Russ, you know, who are you, you know, so I I'm like, my name's Matt, and I'm here to help you get started, I'm like, just nailing it, right, just very, very professional, and he's like, oh, hold on, I gotta go get some headphones, so he like disappears, so I'm just sitting there looking into his office, and just sitting there thinking, okay, this is good, you know, I've done it, like, I was just calm, didn't, didn't, then all of a sudden, just kind of over the top of the computer, I see a little face peeking down, and it's his wife, Sierra. And she's like, oh, who are you? And I look up and I see her and I'm like, uh, totally caught me off guard. And she sits down in Russ's chair and she's like, how are you doing during this pandemic? She goes, it's just the sweetest, most caring person, you know? And I'm just like, uh, uh, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. I literally said you're fine like 10 times, and I'm like, how do I get off this video, you know? I was just totally blew my cool. I was like the most, um, like, I don't know. Uh, it, was, it was like I was like being fan, you know, a fan, yeah, I was just fanboy over this, the whole thing, and totally embarrassed myself and couldn't get off the screen fast enough. And uh, then the rest of everything, you know, went and it was fine and stuff. And, 
And, uh, and I ask ourselves, well, why do we care so much about what a celebrity who doesn't even know who we are, what he thinks? Well, why do I care what he thinks of me or his wife, right? And really it comes down to kind of this issue of pride. We don't want to look bad in front of people, right? We want to look good, especially people who have power or people who, you know, you know, we look up to, we want, we want them to, to look at us and, and think we're valuable. And, um, and so whether we're aware of it or not, I think pride is something that is just, you know, is a part of who we are. And um, it's, it takes a lot of work of God working in our souls to kind of start prying us from our personal pride. So today, that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, and we are right here in— uh, Second Corinthians, and we're just continuing on uh, in this sermon series. So I'm going to be reading Second uh, Corinthians 11:16 through 22, uh, and I'm going to be reading on through the rest of the, the chapter. But that's where we're going to start. So and as you're as you're going there, um, in case you you want to follow along and kind of understand where where I'm going here, my three points today are this. So if you tune out after this, then like at least you kind of understood what I was planning to talk about. Uh, first one is be aware of your pride and defensiveness, right? That's what we want to do. Be aware of your pride and defensiveness. Second, embrace a style, a lifestyle of vulnerability. And third, let God transform you through weakness. So those are my three main points, and we're going to kind of get through here. But let's start with 2 Corinthians uh, 11, 16 through 22. Uh, here I go. And he says this, I repeat, let no one think of me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I, may, I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear, bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. We're going to stop right there and kind of pause for a second here. And um, you read that, and you're not immediately like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. That makes a lot of sense. He's like, um, there's a lot of nuance to this. He's, he's using sar a bunch of sarcasm. And so some of it is lost in translation. And, and what it reminds us of here is that the New Testament, especially um, the letters, the epistles, they call them, in the New Testament, are, are, are their physical letters written, you know, from, from Paul to different churches, to a very specific church in this very specific culture. And so we're only listening to half a conversation. So I don't know if you guys ever, you know, heard someone on cell phone and they're talking. My wife does this all the time. She'll be on the phone and I'll come walking in and I'm listening. And if I don't know who she's talking to exactly, like it's not making sense. Like, why would you tell your mom that? You know, like, but, oh, it's not your mom. Okay, like, like we're just listening and you're trying to piece together what the conversation is on the other side, right? And so these letters are not rich theological essays for us to like, you know, Paul's saying, here's the three points on, 
on uh, how not to be prideful, right? Like, it's nuanced, and he's like joking, and he's jabbing, and he's, he's talking to them in a very specific way that they would understand, and they would receive in a different way. Um, and so we've we got to kind of piece together what was the other half of the conversation that he was talking to so that we can say, oh, okay, now I see what Paul is doing here. And so um, if you look at this and you kind of read it and understand it, there's kind of three, three different things in the, their culture that he was addressing. And one was that um, they had a real culture of self-promotion. So what happened was is that Paul— he came through, he preached, he kind of established a church, and then he went on to go establish another church. And other preachers would come into town, and they would be like, oh, yeah, 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 oh, there's a church here, great, let me tell you some more about the scriptures. And they were hungry to learn, and so they would come in and kind of come in and lead the church. And, um, but in order for a speaker or a leader, when they came to town back then, they didn't have the internet right? They didn't have these great marketing campaigns saying, okay, Billy Graham's coming to town, right? They didn't know who these people were. So they'd come to town, and they'd have to say, okay, here are my list of qualifications. Like, I'm a really, you know, I'm really good at preaching. And, and some of the, the accusations against Paul is that he's not a very good speaker. So Paul comes to town, they're like, okay, he's got a good message, but like, he really needs to like, stop stuttering, and, and he really needs to like, tell some better stories. And these guys would come in and they're like, hey, I'm a great speaker. You're going to want me at your church. And then they would go on and say, okay, listen, these other leaders, you know, these leaders approve of me. Um, here's the successes I had in these other churches and these other towns. They would come and promote themselves. And people would be like, oh, you are great. We'll listen to you. Thing is that Paul didn't do this. So Paul would come to town, he'd talk about how great Jesus was, and he'd leave, and they'd be like, well, who was Paul? What? And Paul's like, why does it matter who I was? It's not a, about me. And so the people, the, the, these other pastors would come to town, and a lot of them were, were false teachers. And earlier he calls them super apostles. And it's thought to know that these people were probably Judaizers. And so Judaizers were a group of people, um, probably even like Pharisees, who became Christians, who believed in Jesus, and they were like, oh, okay, so Jesus is the fulfillment. That's great. I understand how it all works in the grand scheme of things, uh, but it seems to me that if you're a Christian, you also have to do all of the Jewish laws. And so they would come in, and they would be really, really harsh on the people and say, well, you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this. And, um, and so there's, they're false teachers, and they were not saying, like, you aren't saved. You, you don't become a Christian just by believing in Jesus. It's by, like, doing all the things God has asked you to do and do a really, really good job. And then, if there's anything left over, then God, like, Jesus dies for those things. Um, and so they're really adding a lot to what the gospel is all about. So Paul was not really, really, really too happy with them. Um, so they'd come in, they would self-promote and cast doubt on, on Paul— um, also, it says in here, if you look at this, is that the culture really loved what I'll call abusive leadership. You, you, you hear what he, he wrote in here? He goes, um, so you bear with it. You bear it if someone makes slaves of you. So we're talking about a, a pastor comes in, he sets up, okay, I'm going to now pastor this church, and I'm going to make slaves of you. Make, meaning, you know, I'm going to make you work. I'm going to make you work hard. And uh, devour you, takes advantage of you, puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. 
And it said that they actually would strike people in the face for sinning. So the pastor was like, all right, time to come up. Confess your sins. We're going to have to beat this out of you. And it was literally a very abusive leadership style that they had there. And it's interesting how attracted they were to these kinds of things. And, and God, or Jesus isn't this way, right? Jesus doesn't come in and abuse people. He came in and loved people. He didn't, um, you know, he didn't put him a, a, a yoke of slavery. He like came after the, the lowly of heart. And, and in fact, he always said, you don't have to be first, you should be last, right? Let the last be first. And so Jesus kind of turns all this stuff on its end. Um, and the third thing they did here, and I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about how we're very, very similar to this. Um, you're probably picking that up as I'm, I'm reading. You're like, oh yeah, we're kind of, um, you know, we are very, you know, self-promoting in our culture, right? And we are, we, we are tend to be drawn to kind of these really powerful, abusive leadership styles. And then the last one that I would say that they um, are doing here is they defined success wrongly. So we do this a ton in our culture too, right? So, um, you know, success was, you know, power, you know? And success was like, look at all these things I've done. Look how many, you know, baptisms. Look how many people got saved. Look, here's the numbers behind everything. Here's the, the finances behind everything, right? And so these guys would come into town and they're like, you can trust us because look at our wealth. Like they would come in and say, because I'm wealthy, God obviously is blessing me. Therefore, God's hand is on me. Therefore, you should listen to me. And so they defined success wrongly. And so um, Paul didn't have a lot of money. In fact, Paul could not afford to live solely on his preaching, you know, the money that he got from churches that he had to work. And he, he worked as a tent maker, and he, he worked like almost his whole career. He worked, and this is, Paul says there were times where he went without, and there were times where like he was doing all right. But in their case, it looked like he was not truly, you know, doing okay. He was not financially making it. And so they defined success wrongly. Um, in Pete Scazzaro's book, he, this is a pastor that I, I really love to follow, um, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. And it's kind of really spoken to me, but he talks about we as a church do the same thing. We define success all wrong. And then in North America, it's all about like bigger and better, right? You want more people, more money. Like we always want the graph to grow, right? And that's how we do business. That's how we do everything. And he says, let's stop and, and think about how God defines success. And this is what he said. He said, we need to be who God has made us to be. We need to do what God has called us to do in his time and in his way. And that's different from saying you need to be wealthy and successful and be powerful, because that's not how God defines success. In fact, Jesus's ministry would be considered not successful, right? He had a small group of followers. He did all of his ministry, most of his ministry, in a really, like, fringes of society. Um, there were lots of times where um, he was encouraged to go into the city and, like, make his ministry great, and he was like, no, no, it's not my time. In fact, 
most of the people, you know, you know, his ministry ended with him dying and most of the followers scattering and saying, yeah, we don't, we don't follow this guy, right? He did not have a successful ministry, um, according to what we would think. And I, I'm just going to pull out this John 7, 3 through 8, um, just to kind of illustrate this point, because I think we, we kind of know this, but I think we're so ingrained in uh, the culture of success in our world and, and on social media, and, and everyone really just kind of, you know, we want to have a significant life, and we want, you know, to have success. We want to die saying, yes, I was successful. People should follow me because of my success. And we have to be reminded of, like, just the way Jesus did things was so much different than, than the way we do things. So uh, John 7, uh, starting verse 3, uh, and it said to him, so it says, um, So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, you should show, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not, uh, for not even his brothers believed in him. I'm going to stop real quick right there. It's like, you remember how many times Jesus would heal someone and be like, Hey, don't, don't tell anybody about that. Like, yeah. I'm glad that you're thankful, but like, just, let's just keep this quiet. He's, he wasn't trying to self-promote. Um, and they're like, okay, you need to go, you need to go into the city. And um, if you're going to do these works, we want everyone to see. So seven, uh, I'm going to continue on here. Um, where was I? John 7 through 9. 6, thanks. Uh, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast. This feast, my time is not fully come. And after staying this, he remained in Galilee. So we always, Jesus is constantly saying, it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. Because he was listening to saying, I want to do my ministry God's way, and I'm going to do it God's timing. And we hate God's timing, right? Like God's timing is always 10 times slower than we want to go. And, um, you know, they're like, okay, this is how you build a ministry. You know, you got to get into the city. You got to do some miracles on stage. You got to get everyone to see it. And then people will believe, and you'll have this huge ministry. And he goes, that's not God's way. And this is not God's time. So I'm going to wait. Um, if you look at the prophets, Jeremiah preached his whole career, and nobody listened to him. Like, what a failure. What a failure. Except for if we define success as being who God has called you to be, do what God has called you to do in God's time, God's way, he was a success. He was a success. And so we have to learn to shift the way that we look at things and the way we do things. And Paul knows this. And so as he's engaging in this conversation, he's like, it's foolish of me to even try to like self-promote myself. And they're like, they're even questioning if he's even a Jew. He's like, are you even a Jewish person? Like, you say you are. Or you, maybe you're a con artist, right? They're really casting doubt on him. And, um, and he is trying to respond in a way um, where he's not going to respond defensively and impride. And it almost sounds like he is. He's like, all right, here we go. I'm going to talk like a fool right now, right? But the, he's it's in sarcasm. He's like, okay, if I'm going to like, argue with you. I'm literally going against the way God wants me to do. This is God, not God's way to be defensive about all your accusations. Um, he's like, here, okay, I'm going to be defensive now. You guys listen. So they're like, okay, 
he's perked their interest. They're like, okay, how's he going to defend himself, right? They're ready to listen to him. They think this is valuable to them, that he's going to finally explain why he is so worthy of, um, of listening. So we're going to move on to the second one. So the first one, be aware of your pride and defensiveness. We are all like this. And in our culture in North America and the United States, we self-promote like crazy on social media. You know, you, know, I, you see on LinkedIn, I mean, our blog posts, our podcasts. If you want to learn how to, to earn, you know, $1.5 million in one year, like go on a podcast because there's podcasts all over the place of guys who've done it and they can tell you exactly how to do it. And they're promoting themselves everywhere where you go. And this is our culture we live in. And God's like, that's not my way. Um, and so we need to be, realize that this stuff is kind of seeped into our hearts, right? We like to promote ourselves. We like these strong leaders. Um, it, it was kind of interesting in my studies, um, I heard that, that um, if you think about people who are pastors, that pastors um, attract a certain type of people. And um, in fact, they say that narcissists are, tend to be um, attracted to being upfront. And um, I don't have it here in my notes, but the definition of a narcissist um, is that, you know, they are so want to self-promote themselves. And they, uh, they have this, this sense of like, that they need to be uh, approved of by people around, that they like, have to put themselves literally as the voice of God up front, right? That's the kind of people who are like, yes, I want to be a pastor. I want to stand up on the stage, and I want to like, tell everybody. I want everyone to look at me and tell me that I am significant because I speak for God. And uh, we love these kinds of people. We love these kinds of leaders when they're strong and they, like, don't have any, um, you know, they're, they're not emotionally swayed and they, like, preach at us and they, like, make us, you know, make us feel bad maybe about our sin and, and really, you know, they, they get up and, and they're, they're really authoritative. And uh, we love it. We, we love to feel like the person up front has it all together and he can show us the way. That's not the way of Jesus. And um, all of us have a little bit of this narcissism where we won't feel like, you know, the world needs to revolve around us and we, need, we have this hole in our life that we need people's approval to make us feel better about ourselves. Um, so we have to be aware that we all have this pride and defensiveness as like kind of a part of who we are. Um, and we need God to help us through this. So I'm going to read about how he responds to this. In my second point, embrace a lifestyle of vulnerability. So uh, starting here um, in verse 23, it says this. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drifted sea. Frequent journeys in danger of rivers and dangers of robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Paul's like list of, here's why you should listen to me, was not a list of his successes, right? In fact, he's actually doing a wordplay here, um, and it's kind of missed in, uh, in the English translation when he talks about being a servant of God, because their word for like pastor or minister was like servant of God. And so these false teachers would come in and say, I'm a servant of God. Here's my wealth. God has been good to me. Here's my great speaking abilities. Now come listen to me. And I need the best, you know, I need the best seat in the house, the best parking spot. Like I am, you know, the servant of God, as though that was something that made you great. And Paul says, you know what? I am a better servant because I am more menial. I'm a, I'm a more menial servant. So I'm here doing whatever God has asked me to do, doing what God has called me to do, which means, in his case, pretty rough life right? And so he's honest about his rejection. So instead of saying, look at all these people who believe in me. Look at all these people who accepted me. He goes, I went into the city, um, and I was beat. So the, the, uh, the 40 lashes minus one, that's the, like, the Jewish beating. So he would go, and he would preach to the Jewish com- communities, and their punish was, was 40 lashes, but in their rules— if you, if you accidentally, if someone got beat 41 lashes, then the person who beat him would be in trouble, so they'd always stop at 39 just in case they miscounted, right? So, so he got beat 39 lashes five times. So he's like, okay, so pretty much all my Jewish people have, all these communities have rejected me, and I have scars on my back of all these times I've been beat. And then he goes, and I was hit with rods. So rods are the Roman punishment. Probably he was considered um, a traitor because he preached a different kingdom. And so, and he was a Roman citizen, which is supposed to protect him all this stuff. So he's like, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Jewish person, but they don't like me too much. I'm a Roman, and I've been beat by rods. Um, He has constantly been rejected. And so he's not there self-promoting. He's like, listen, I'm just doing what God has called me to do. And I'm not going to brag about what God's had me do. It's like, it's like someone comes to here and says, I'm going to preach to you guys. Please ignore my ankle bracelet. You know, my little like, uh, you know, I just, I'm out on, on good behavior from prison. You know, I've been in prison a lot, so you should probably listen to me, right? You're like, okay, so you've been in prison. You know, you've been accused of, you know, disobeying the laws. You don't seem like a real law-abiding citizen. Everywhere you go, there's controversy, right? Like he's blowing up churches, going in, saying, okay, this is the right way, that's not. So it's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't listen to this guy, right? And this is his qualifications. Um, He's honest about his rejection. Like, in terms of society's view of him, he's a failure. And he's honest about that. Second of all, it gets worse, okay? So not only was he rejected by people, but he was shipwrecked three times. So can you imagine like being in an airplane accident and being like, I survived an airplane accident three times. Everyone's like, 
three times? I mean, after one, you're like, I'm never getting on an airplane again, right? Like, I'm never going to get on a boat again after it's been shipwrecked, you know? And he gets three times. And in fact, this isn't his last shipwreck. This is, later in his ministry, he has another shipwreck. So, and he has no control over what's going on with the boat. So you start thinking, like, God, like, I've already been beat, and now you're, like, allowing me to be in a situation where I'm being shipwrecked. In fact, it's not like, a, oh, you know, we ran on some rocks, and, you know, we had to get on some life roads. I mean, he's, like, adrift at sea for a day and a half. That's not what you consider, like, successful ministry, right? Like, he's, he's feeling, he's having some dark days. And... Um, really interesting to see um, how he's learning to trust God in these dark days. Um, not only that, I mean, he just goes on, and it's, it's a, little, a little bit crazy. I don't even know that we can really identify with all of this stuff. Um, he's frequently in danger. He says rivers and robbers and his own people and Gentiles and the city and in the wilderness. I mean, he's constantly, like, not settling for just comfort and safety in his life. He's saying, all right, God, what have you asked me to do? And, and honestly, not, we shouldn't all say like, well, I should be putting myself into danger because that's what God has called me to do. This is what God called Paul to do. That's his, that was his role. We have to all go to God and say, God, what have you asked me to do? Who have you created me to be? And what have you called me to do? And sometimes it, and it generally means that we have to get out of our comfort zone. And he's in danger a lot. Um, I think the things that really kind of stuck out to me in this is, okay, sleepless nights. Nobody loves sleepless nights, but usually, usually when we have sleepless nights, it's because we're worried, we're anxious, we've got a lot on our plate, and we're wrestling with God over the things in our lives. Can you imagine having all this adversity in your life, and you're like sleeping at night, just like, God, what is going on? Like, I understand people aren't going to love me because um, I'm preaching a message that you don't understand, but like, I mean, this feels like you don't love me. <laughs> like, I'm getting shipwrecked here. It says he went without food and drink. I mean, I don't know about you, but like, if I miss a meal, I get hangry, right? I'm like, all right, I don't even know if God exists anymore, right? I miss lunch, and like my whole faith has now gone out the window until I get some food in me. And he's like, I went without food. I went without drink. I've had to like really suffer. Um, and so for them in, that, in their culture, if you're saying, like, it, these things happen to me, and the only explanation is that God allowed these things to happen to him. So he's sitting there going, yeah, my, these are my list of qualifications. People rejected me, and then I was in a bunch of circumstances beyond my control, like a ton of them, and they all look like, like God didn't, wasn't looking out for me. That's what it, like, looks like. He's like, and this is what makes me a servant of God. He's like flipping the whole script on like, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, so then the last thing he says, um, so he's, he's honest about rejection. He's like telling him about the dark days he's been. He's been in some pretty rough dark days where he's really had to like learn to trust Jesus. And the last thing is he talks about being emotional. And I think in our culture, we do this a lot too, is that we don't, we don't see emotions as a positive thing, right? So if someone's, like, emotional about something, you're like, come on, it's not that bad. Like, snap out of it. Like, don't cry, you know? Um, walk it off. <laughs> you know, if you're, you're in sports and you get hurt, uh, it's always walk it off. And so we don't see value in emotions. And he's like, 
he leads with empathy here. He's like, when people get hurt, I, I, I feel the stress, I feel the anguish of these churches getting torn apart, and I'm saddened for them, and I'm emotional about them. And he's, he talks about having empathy and that how it's painful for him to engage in empathy. And as he sees, he says, you know, when people are weak, I'm weak. When, when the people that I love are hurting, when they're, um, when they're in sin, it like affects me. And, and he's like, I, I have empathy for them. And we don't do empathy well in our culture, especially not from leadership, right? Like you want a leader who's strong and no matter how hard it is, he's like, I got this all together. And Paul's like, I feel, I, feel, I feel for these people. And this is part of like what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to read this um, in this book. One more little excerpt I wanted to, um, to explain to you guys. Because this has been super valuable to me in, in my life. Um, there's a little uh, chart here. I don't have it up on the screen, unfortunately. But it's like a list of what is weak and vulnerable looks like and what proud and defensive looks like in leadership. So I'm just going to read this to you and just contrast these two. So weak and vulnerable. I allow myself to be sorrowful and troubled in front of others. Or I cover over my feelings of sorrow and confusion in front of my team. You see the, see the difference there? The way of Jesus is the weak and vulnerable. I admit to my team when I'm feeling overwhelmed. On the other side, I refuse to fall apart, always modeling strong faith and vision, especially in front of my team. Weak and vulnerable, I easily ask for the help and prayers of others. Proud and defensive, I rarely appear needy in front of others. While I will be there for others, I don't look for others to be there for me. I start thinking about, like, which ones of these do you most identify with? It, it's humbling. <laughs> um, I pray in utter dependence to surrender my will to God, or I pray how to strategically turn a bad situation around to expand the ministry. You can see, see the difference there? Uh, and the last one here, I have no problem falling face down on the ground in front of others when I struggle to submit myself to the unfathomable will of the Father. Or I try to stand tall, being decisive and unwavering in crisis so that others can lean on me for faith and strength. There's a, a huge contrast in, in the way of these. And, and Paul is modeling this weak and vulnerability of like, listen, I, I've gone through a lot of pain. I've like emotionally, I'm hurting for you guys, and this is the way of Jesus. Um, personal story here, and then I'm, I'll wrap, wrap this up here. Um, a, couple, a, year, a couple years ago, um, my wife and I started going to um, some counseling, and as we're meeting with the counselor, uh, my wife started talking about how, um, how she's felt that, like, I don't, I haven't been there for her, and I haven't, like, treated her well in our marriage, okay? Very hard to hear, right? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, oh, yeah? I don't see it, right? I've treated you well, right? And so she starts talking about it, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm the, like, I'm the good Christian here, right? So uh, I've been steady. We've gone through a lot, and I've, like, you know, just whatever that was going on around us, we're just going to stay the course, you know. I'm just, and, um, and so she's talking, and the, count, the counselor talk, you know, turns to me and says, so Matt, like, how long have you been 
emotionally absent in, in this marriage. And my heart just like sunk. And he turned to Rachel and was like, you know, have you, do you feel that like you've been emotionally abandoned? And I realized that I wasn't being the good Christian. I was being the problem. And we started exploring this like emotional hardness in my heart and this defensiveness in my heart. And um, what was uncovered was um, when I was 18, my, my younger sister died. And I never processed it. As a good Christian, I pushed it down. Didn't let, want the sadness or anger to affect me and let the devil win. I'm saying this facetiously if you're not catching on to this, but I just buried it. And so when bad things would happen, you know, you lose your job. You're like, well, at least nobody died today. My wife would be like, I'm upset about this. I'm like, yeah, did your sister die today? And in my head, not out loud. Your sister died today? Then carry on, soldier. Like, I had this hardness in my heart. And I made her to feel like if she's feeling emotional, that's her fault. She's the one who needs to love Jesus and pray more. And I have it all together. And it literally took counseling and processing this stuff and digging into my life and bear, uh, you know, uncovering the sadness and, and literally weeping to my counselor and coming to the end of my grief. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's fully end of my grief yet, but you know what happened through this? Is I started to feel again. And when my, my wife would share, like, I'm frustrated about this, I would be like, oh, I can see that. For the first time in like a decade, I started to, to feel for people. And I'm not perfect, and I don't got everything put together or anything, but sometimes this pride that like is in our hearts is because of damage that's been done to us in the past. Things that have affected us and, who've, who've, and we've been wounded and we've not dealt with it. So yes, we need to know that we're not supposed to be prideful. We love Jesus. We have our, you know, we have our minds. We know that's true, but there's some work that we have to do. Sometimes it's our family of origin, things our parents have done to us, or, or things, experiences that we've had as a kid, um, other things, uh, friends, whatever. we get defensive. In middle school, I was picked on a ton, and I know that that is part of why I have my own levels of defensiveness. Um, in fact, I will confess to you that probably pride is my biggest sin. And you might say to yourself, he doesn't seem very prideful. And I would say, that's exactly what I want you to think. I'm so prideful that even that story that I told at the very beginning about the Russell Wilson story is actually a story of pride. And I've used it before in talking with people because I want people to associate me with Russell Wilson and me with not being prideful. Because those are two values I hold. And in pride, I put those out and say, look how good I am. And I want you guys all to know. <sighs> We're so broken, aren't we? We're so twisted inside, and we need God to transform us. Okay, last point here. And I believe that this is kind of where it all kind of comes together. Uh, this last couple of verses, and, I, and my point is, let God transform you through weakness not through strength. So at the very end of this chapter, he's got this weird story. It's odd. Um, he says here, 
Uh, the crux of his whole point is verse 30 here. If I must boast, I will bus- boast of the things that show my weakness. And then he goes, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under the king Artius was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. That's it. And you're like, what? What, what does this have to do with boasting. And what I think is going on here, uh, this, so you can read about this. Um, I'm not going to go through it all. We're running low on time here, but in Acts, he talks about it. So Paul didn't always believe in God. He was a Pharisee. He killed Christians. He was against it. He met, he met God on the road to Damascus. His heart was changed. And then he spent like eight years, like studying the scriptures and re-understanding the way he'd always looked at the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is. And so his first like time he's going to like plant a church. He goes to Damascus, and he's like, all right, time to preach. And he goes in there, and he goes, hey, you guys know who I am? Yeah, well, this is, this is what, what I believe now. And he like preaches, and people are like, wow, isn't this the guy who hated Christians, right? And so he has this experience. It's like his, like his first experience, I, I would say, as a Christian, you know, putting himself out there. And ultimately, it doesn't end well. You know, the, the city gets angry, and they, they decide they're going to kill him, and the governor's out, and the, the police are after him, and he has to run and hide in a basket. And you know, baskets in those days were, were used for all sorts of things. Um, they'd carry bricks in baskets. Um, in Jesus' days, you know, they put, like, the leftover fish in baskets. Um, think, like, garbage baskets of just—so Paul— Instead of like having this amazing experience where he goes and preaches and he starts a church and everyone loves him and hooray for Paul, he ends his time there hiding in a basket and being lowered down a you know, four or five story wall to, to sneak out of the city and he's humbled. Not only does he, has he not like trusted, so first he trusted God like in his mind, in his heart, that he, like, that Jesus was real, but then he actually had to put his trust in God for his physical life and say, I mean, he, he was vulnerable, and he didn't know if he was going to escape. He just, all he did was sit in a basket, and who knows how many hours he sat in that basket, and he had to trust that the basket was not going to give way, and he had to trust that the ropes were not going to give way, and that some guard wasn't going to see him and sh- shoot an arrow through the basket, or when he opens up the basket, he, you know, the guards are right there. I mean, there was all sorts of things that could have gone wrong. And this is not a prideful way of him finishing his sermon. He goes, I believe he's saying, this is when I learned to trust God. I mentally understood to trust God, I mentally knew, knew that I, like, I had to submit to him. But this is where I practically submitted to God and said, all right, your will, not mine. My guess is Paul ended that day saying, if this is how I die, this is how I die. That's how humbling he had to get. And it changed him because the rest of his life, he has all of these experiences where he about dies and he's like, all right, it's just me and you again, God. I guess if this is how I die, this is how I die. As he's imagining him floating, you know, it's, it's Titanic, and he's holding on to the, to the, you know, to the piece of log, and um, 
he was changed. And honestly, this is how we are all changed. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have to get into a basket and say, God, I trust you. I trust you to save me. Not in the work that I'm going to do, not in my efforts. I'm going to put myself in the basket, in your basket, and trust in Jesus, that he died for the cross for my sins, and that you have me. And we all come to Christ that way. But we also have to learn to put our actual, actual lives in the basket. When we look at our jobs, when we look at our houses, when we look at God telling us it's time for you to do something different, and we have to get into that basket and, all right, God, I'm trusting you. That is a whole different story. But that is what God has called us to do, to humble ourselves. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's got in his strong, perfect leadership, right? What is he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's like, God, please, if there's any other way, I don't want to do it this way. But your will, not my will, be done. And then he goes again, but God, I mean, if there's any other way, this is God of the universe. And he is wrestling with submitting his human will to God's will. That's what we all have to do. If he wrestles, don't think we have to wrestle with that on a daily, weekly, hourly basis. As we learned to trust Jesus. Let me pray for us.